1: Next time. Hello, welcome on today's episode of Partially Excited. We got Russ Devan. This guy is an amazing gem if you want to understand and rip yourself apart in a sense of to understand the true training and the true gift you have in the world. Russ has a program called Untraining where he takes people and teaches them A, their gift to B, how to listen and also how to design. The plan of your success. You can catch him at successbydesign.us. Hello and welcome to the show, Russ. How are you today?
2: I'm tickled to be here. Thank you, uh, Aaron, and I'm honored.
1: Russ, tell us what it's like growing up in Pennsylvania.
2: Oh my gosh. Pennsylvania is a beautiful place. I, I was so blessed to be from there. Pennsylvania is, of course, an old state, and it's the Keystone State. I guess the best part of growing up in Pennsylvania was the family that I was blessed to grow up with. My father, who was originally from West Virginia, and my mother, uh, was born in Texas. They met and were married in Pennsylvania, in Hanover, Pennsylvania. And I grew up in a little town called Hanover, which is geographically it's right in between a very famous site called Gettysburg. It's just. 10 miles east of Gettysburg and it's south of the capital of Pennsylvania, which is Harrisburg. And it's right at the Maryland border. So growing up, I spent a lot of time in Maryland too. A lot of my schooling years were in Maryland from the time I was in the sixth grade. Baltimore is only about 27 miles away. But some of the things I love the most about where I grew up in Pennsylvania was its proximity to so many wonderful places. We were really only about a four or five hour drive from Ocean City, Maryland, from from the beach, from the shore, uh, close to the Chesapeake, only about an hour and a half away, an hour and a half away from Washington, D.C., two hours away from Philadelphia. So even though I grew up in a small town and pretty much on a horse farm, I had a lot of cultural and influential uh, things all around me, including the history of Gettysburg and the part it played in the Civil War. Pennsylvania is a gorgeous state with mountains and meadows and lakes and a beautiful scenery and wonderful people. And so it was growing up in Pennsylvania was a big part of my life. And it occurred to me, I moved to Arizona from the Midwest, from Chicago about 27 years ago. So actually I've lived in Arizona longer than anywhere else in my life, but no matter where I go and What I do, when somebody asks me where I'm from, I always say Hanover, Pennsylvania, and I guess I'll always be from there. That'll always be my home.
1: Just shows us when our home is where we stand and it keeps the memory in our, our minds.
2: Yep, yep.
1: Did you brothers and sisters, or are you kind of the only child, or?
2: No, I have two older brothers who I love and who are both have been very successful in their own right and in their own businesses. My oldest brother, who I think is the smartest of the three, it was always brilliant, always an excellent student, a, a typical first child, the performer. He's five years older than I am, and he was an amazing big brother. And he went on to be an investment banker, now manages a $2 billion hedge fund with his partner. He lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. He's quite successful. My other brother, Bill, it's kind of wondering if there was anything left over for me by the time I was born, you know, four years after Bill and five years after Larry, but Bill is uh lives in chicago but he is amazingly handsome he was a model for many years he he made his business by selling insurance but he's also quite gifted my brother bill is my father's namesake named after my father his name is william todd devan he's william todd devan jr and my oldest brother was named after my grandfather whose name was lawrence shepherd my maternal grandfather and my oldest brother is lawrence shepherd devan so yeah, they're pretty special and have been big influences on my life and still are.
1: I say that the last child, you get the handovers and the the, the clothes.
2: And- <laughs> the, the pass me downs. and yeah. But I also got an enormous amount of attention and love, both from my mother and my father and my brothers. So uh, I, I don't mind being the youngest um, and the goofiest of the three. But uh, I've definitely been somebody who's marched to my own drummer for a lot of years. I can't really be you know, categorized or defined as something that the family, I mean, even though the family did produce me, I, I you know, kind of stood out in a way in the family for not always the right reasons.
1: What did your parents do?
2: My father was a doctor and, uh, and quite a good one. He was a surgeon, a general surgeon. He was an amazing father in terms of the time he devoted with us, how closely he paid attention to us. And he really was a patriarch where we all more than loved him. We kind of adored him. He was a larger than life person. He was a veteran of two wars, World War II and Korea. And of course, he got a lot of practice for his surgery as a young man in battle, doing what he called meatball surgery. But he grew up and was the chief of surgery of Hanover General Hospital. And my mother is where I really gain, I think, a lot of my love for literature and poetry. She's responsible for that. She was a very interesting and brilliant, uh, very loving. And both of them had a profound impact on all three of us. You know, it's funny because I I meet a lot of people and they don't have the same relationship with their parents or their siblings uh, that we were blessed to have. I still, even though my father has been gone from this earth since, well, I guess it's going on 18 years. It was 18 years in September and my mother passed away on New Year's Day in 2013. Both of them are very much alive with me. Both of them are here with me. I feel their presence. I hear them in what I say and the things I think and do almost every day, if not every day. So they were quite special.
1: And being special people, how do they influence you to make the rust that we know today?
2: That's a a very interesting question. My father is someone who I hope to emulate as a father and as a person because he was a man of great wisdom and great courage. And I feel like I'm a pale image of him in that regard. But I endeavor to honor who he was and all the things that he taught me and gave me. And my mother, very much the same. I'm probably more like my father. And well, I guess I'd have to say I'm a combination, really. But my mother really taught me a lot about how to be with people and and an appreciation of life. My mother used to say to all of us, you've got a lot to live up to, but you need to live up to it and not on it. Like whatever we've given you, and they gave us a lot of love. And although I don't think we were materially rich, what you'd you'd say high class or well off, What we got was very valuable and very, uh, we never wanted for anything, but my mother wanted to be clear that we found our own way and we made our own special contribution. And that's probably the biggest gift that my mother gave me was the desire to contribute and live up to the contribution and all the gifts that we had received.
1: That's that's amazing. You know, I want you said you your mother gave you the love of literature. What did you read? Everything you get your hands on?
2: Yes, as a child, it's funny. And I've seen how that's played out so well in my life. My mother taught me. Well, I learned how to read in school but she taught me a love of reading. She was a voracious reader. And from the time that I can remember, even as early as like second and third and fourth grade, I loved to read and I got so much from it. I mean, I I read stories that were probably at that level or maybe a little bit above, but I found The more I read, the better I spelled, for instance. I always excelled in spelling. I don't think it was so much for understanding spelling, it was remembering what the words look like. And I loved to read and I would get lost in fantasy. And I say fantasy, I don't mean necessarily like science fiction fantasy, but I remember I loved to read about wildlife and adventure. And that was so much of early beginning, it made me want to travel and made me want to learn about the world and made me dream of far off places and fantastic lands. And, uh, you know, I loved authors like Rudyard Kipling. I fell in love with India long before I even knew where India was, you know, just by you know, reading. And my mother read to me when I was little and and the first things I heard were things like the Just So stories and the Jungle Book. And I've had a love of animals and science through paleontology, all because my mother encouraged me to read. And although I was not a great student, when it came to literature, it really helped me in so many areas, learning about history, for instance, or learning about the world and geography. You couldn't teach me geography in class, but I learned geography and history from what I read and i love to think about the adventures and the possibilities of where i could go and what i could see and all that i believe i owe to my mother
1: it's interesting how you may not strive in the academic subjects but you strived in the book education where you open up a book and you'd enter it and like i must see what the line does or go to india or egypt you know
0: yeah
2: that's right yeah yeah and uh i think there was something about formal education at least the early parochial education like from in the sixth and seventh and eighth grade that just didn't interest me like I've always been spoiled in the sense that if something didn't interest me, I didn't like it, I wouldn't listen. And so when I was trying to teach me basic math. I remember, I think I was when in the eighth grade or seventh or eighth grade where they took me to be tested because they thought maybe I had a learning disability. And they found out that in the seventh grade, I was reading and comprehending on a college level what I was reading. But when it came to certain other things like geography or history, I didn't, didn't have any aptitude for those at all because I wasn't interested in them. And how I got interested in them was my father's experience. My father was history on unfolding before my eyes and it was his my love of him that got my interest in history and science and it was my love of my mother that got me interested in reading and literature and poetry which i love geography literature poetry art those are all gifts of my parents relationship to those subjects rather than learning about them in school
1: it's fascinating how the love of what your parents did, integrated into what you loved as well. Mm -hmm. You majored and did university degrees in those areas, right?
2: Well, I, when I was in college, I was, for a long time, I thought I wanted to be a doctor like my father. And when I started to pursue that path in college, I was very discouraged by the areas that I did not have an aptitude, like inorganic chemistry and high math skills. I didn't like them. I couldn't be interested in them. I didn't get them. So I gave up my passion, not for science, but for pursuing a career in medicine. And I decided to focus instead on people and my love of literature. And I actually wound up majoring in three areas and getting a specific type of liberal arts degree, which I don't even think is is offered anymore. It was called a Bachelor of Liberal Arts, which is like having, instead of having a major or two majors, you have like three minors. So my TriPost degree was Business, English, and Sociology, all which integrated together very well. Why did
1: you choose those three?
2: Well, I think Sociology because I loved people and was very interested in, in culture and different kinds of culture. And the most fascinating part of sociology for me was studying foreign cultures, like cultures other than my own. Like, I remember I had a teacher who was, uh, uh, who was a doctor of anthropology, and I remember studying the Yanamama Indians of the Amazon and uh, different cultures worldwide, like the culture of Islam, and fascinated by how different those environments and experiences and cultures were from my own and being really interested in that english of course was a natural for me because of my love of writing and the written word and poetry and reading of course you know it was a natural for me to to study and be interested in things that other people thought were a pain like shakespeare or or poetry or early american literature the power of the word and i've always loved writing so that was also a natural and then business of course what i learned about business in college You could probably fit in a thimble. Most of my business acumen really came from experience, but marketing did interest me, advertising, sales, but what I got from that in college was not experiential in nature. What I learned in the area of business was all from experiencing it. And so, even though I fared, you know, well, I didn't excel in in business. I was probably a, a C student. And I, I, I think back fondly that I remember taking some courses about computers, thinking that they were the future. And and I think how ridiculous those courses were today, relative to where technology and computer have taken us and you know studying Fortran and, and COBOL you know and data processing and thinking oh my gosh this is awful I don't <laughs> why why do I have to do this and and I remember skirting around my math prerequisite because I just didn't the you know, past basic math when we get into algebra and calculus and some of those wonderful disciplines they just again to my own detriment they did not interest me and i wound up satisfying my math requisite or prerequisite in college my senior year by taking a philosophy course which doubled as a math credit and the philosophy course was called symbolic logic and it was a way to learn to prove arguments mathematically, which was a, a phenom- one of the most phenomenal courses that I took in college to this day, because it helps with not only logic, but argument and deducing, you know, and concluding certain things. And it just was fascinating, but it doubled as a math credit because you actually can prove things, prove verbal arguments mathematically.
1: I get the feeling that in college set you up with the skill set to develop and kind of flesh out to who you are now, you know?
2: that that's so but it probably is the thing that i take away from college the most and from my private school education which i was fortunate enough to have as well are the relationships that i made there To be quite honest um i met a a guy my freshman year who (laughs) one of my best friends to this day we still communicate even though our lives have gone completely different directions We are still so close, we met my freshman year, and uh, what a wonderful guy, and I'm closer now to some people that I had relationships with in college and in high school than I was with them then because as adults we've been able to reconnect and I have a different perspective on who they are and who they are to me now than I ever and I know there's people that have relationships or friends from high school and maybe they see them at a reunion once in a while but I think the people particularly that I've had in my I'd say between relationships that I formed between the time I was 15 and 25 that are so valuable to me today. There's not a lot of them, but there's, I bet you there's 20 of them or 30 of them that these people are like really meaningful in my life. And that's where those relationships began.
1: It's interesting how relationships is the cornerstone of who we are. You know, we have friends dating back 30, 40, 50 years and we hang with them and it's exactly the way it was when we hung out with them earlier in our life.
2: Or even better, even richer, you know, now. But of course, we have the perspective of time and, and appreciation. I can honestly say that many of them, when we were teenagers, I didn't know them, I liked them and would have called them best friends. But now there's an entirely different distinction for the relationship where I miss them, if I don't talk to them, or when we connect on the internet, uh, or we see each other, or we communicate through email. I feel these people these are like these are people that that I I have an entirely different feeling about now than I did then that that's so much richer and so much deeper and again that's because of the perspective of time
1: when did you kind of discover that relationships were deep full and meaningful uh, at that time
2: oh what a great question that is Aaron I think it grew again out of my family relationships but I guess relationships really became more important to me when I was, I guess, in my 30s and you know, had close friends that had been with me or I'd met through business, but then got married and broadened my relationships to family and extended family. And then when I had, of course, my own family, my daughter and my wife, that's when I really learned about the value of relationships. And I would also have to say that A huge quantum leap in terms of relationships occurred when I was really about 27 and in my first what i thought would be my career job and i uh i came across a network marketing distribution in the way that most people do you know and you know i went to a meeting and i kind of did it on a dare but as i began to participate in network marketing and saw the importance of relationships real relationships in business and learn the possibility of developing personally. That's when I guess relationships or the context, my relationship to relationships took a quantum leap. And then I'd say 10 years later when I stopped and now I was still young and still and and married and, and having a family of my own personal development and learning more about what that is and learning about myself and the importance of relationships was really when real relationships started to occur, not or or the ones that I already had deepened dramatically. Really was at that time. So that's a it's a qu- interesting question because I'm not introspective about it very often, and you've just caused me to be. But I'd say that understanding the value of relationships for me in my life took a quantum leap when I was in my mid 30s and going forward from there.
1: When you're Developing this quantum leaf in your relationships is when you kind of understood the power of listening.
2: Yes. Well, where I really got the power of listening was when I first understood how terrible I was at it. (laughs) So, I mean, it really was. Here I thought, I was a good salesperson, and that meant I was a good listener. And what I found when I began to study listening, and it was actually part of a program that was year long that was called Leadership, Productivity, and Service, and a spinoff, like if that would be. The college education that course the graduate study would be in pieces of that course and one of them would be called listening i actually took a listening course after that it was all about it was just about the power of listening as a matter of fact i even think that's what it was called was the power of listening and that's when i learned the distinctions and at the time I was looking for what didn't work about business, what didn't work about relationships. And these things were showing up like listening. And so when I created Success by Design's training, it was really based on my own path of development and the distinctions that I was learning. But what was missing to have people's businesses work, relationships work, lives work, and everything pretty much boiled down to listening and understanding yourself and values, of course.
1: It's funny how that's the cornerstone of the world, the human works, but, but yes, we don't tap into it all the time
2: no it's not very common and regrettably it's not part of the education system because what we don't realize is from the time we're born we're learning how to listen and our life's experiences teach us to listen a certain way. And so does education. So what happens is we develop what's already there, which I like to call active or automatic listening. And we never understand how to listen in a way that it not only serves us, but it serves other people and they feel heard.
1: When you were doing that course and understanding listening for yourself, did you feel that you were hearing yourself and others?
2: oh yeah yeah no it's it's a when you learn about how you listen you definitely see the humanity that every you know that everyone deals with and yeah i saw myself what i even better aaron is i saw myself in others who didn't listen When I was learning about listening, what I was most aware of is how I didn't listen. And that's also what showed up for me and other people. When I understood that I wasn't being heard and I saw how other people didn't listen, I became aware of how lacking my listening really was.
1: must have been interesting to take that to network marketing and adding relationships and other ingredients to make your business blossom through the power of listening.
2: Well, it it is and really how it came about was seeing what didn't work, like getting aware of where people struggled in the network marketing process, which partially in my opinion came from how it was being taught to do. And even when I looked at what was being taught, I was seeing what didn't work. So the question was. Well, if this doesn't work, what's missing? Like, what? Why? why doesn't this work? And when I got interested in that inquiry, it occurred for me that not only in network marketing, of course, but in society, in our culture, we are disconnected. And although we talk about the value of relationships, and how to be good with people, what we're missing is how disconnected we really are. And I have opinions on that. I think that technology, although it has certainly served to connect us in ways we've never been connected before, It's disconnecting us almost as fast because we're more connected to the technology than we are to the people that it provides. So when you start to see how we're disconnected, then you can start to see possibilities for how we can become connected again. And that's where listening the entire success by design training was born out of dilemmas that existed for what was missing in what people were being taught. They were being taught. This is what you do to get this. This is how this works works. And of course, what we usually do as human beings is we just believe whatever it is we're being taught instead of exploring or observing what works about where we're being taught and what doesn't. And so coming from that place, I started to see why selling didn't work for so many people? Why prospecting the way it was taught and done didn't work for so many people? How many people were consumed with goal setting and time management and yet they had no plan for creating something or whether they could measure its success or not? So, when I started seeing all these things that were missing, then I didn't say, Well, I got the answer. I started asking questions about what could be put in place as a possibility that might work instead. And that's how I stumbled across my training, what became my training, or like I like to call it, untraining. Because I think we've a lot, and a lot of times, not necessarily something that serves us.
1: Yeah, it's like, has found one way how to do it, but actually it's the wrong way, but they don't see it, it's their blind spot. And then through on training, they realize, oh wow, this is actually who I am, and this is the gift, and I can just listen to people, wow, you know?
2: <laughs> well, it is a different possibility.
1: It sure is, and that's the thing, choice and possibility, everyone has it, you know?
2: Yes, very true.
1: Do you have coaches teaching you to kind of develop you into kind of the character that you are with everything you're doing with success?
2: Always, always, uh, one of my best coaches who's not here anymore, one of my best coaches told me a long time ago, never trust a coach that doesn't have a coach. And I am always being coached and have several mentors that coach me. But you coach me, Aaron, as does everyone that comes into my program. They coach me in how to be better. They coach me in listening, interestingly enough, something that I profess to teach. But every week I learn about how my listening is missing something or could get better or I miss things. I just do. And, you know, it's okay. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I am. But the thing is, is I'm always in coaching, not coaching. I'm always in coaching, being coached and being aware. If the one thing that becomes clear to me, the older I get is how little I know. And unless I'm at a request to learn and be open to what I don't know, there are things that I won't see that could be better. So I try to put myself in a place of not coming from knowing, but being comfortable with not knowing and being open to the possibility that anyone, I mean, you know what? You know who one of my best coaches is today? my child and she's not a child anymore she's 28 years old but she can sit down and we can spend a half an hour an hour together and i am dazzled by what she asks me what she says to me, what she opines, uh, what what she says is an opinion or what she presents to me that I don't know, that I just, I I never thought about it before. And here it comes out. Now, probably if I thought or if I always operated from, well, I'm her father and I've had a lot more years on earth than she has, and I know this and I know that, I wouldn't be able to get the benefit of her coaching. She coaches me about how to be with her mother. An insight that as a a man, I, I just don't get sometimes, you know, but then I get a female perspective. I mean, she is like, I often call her Karen Jr. She's so much like her mother in so many beautiful and wonderful ways. I don't resent that at all. I mean, the less of me and the more of her mother she has, I think the better off she is. But she has her mother's wisdom and she has her own set of experiences that I essentially know nothing about. So I think our children are coaches for us if we're open to it, but we see ourselves always as their teachers, that that's our role. And it is our role to an extent, but at some point, what do they teach us and are we open to it? Each time I do a new course, I'm surrounded by people that coach me and teach me and give me new distinctions for what I'm trying to contribute. So, And then I have coaches that I look up to, people that I admire for the way they they live their life. My father was such a good coach and never ever would have thought himself as a coach. I also had athletic coaches that to this day had such a profound effect on me just by what they had me ask myself or where they had me look. Not do it this way, Russ, instead. No, no, not that. But more like, this doesn't work, this does. Have you ever thought about this? What if you did it this way? Always presented in ways that I had a choice really about what to think about it. And sometimes I hung on their words like it was the voice of God telling me because of how I felt about them, what I admired and loved about them, about who they were, and what a gift in my life they were. And so I guess that's a long-winded way of saying that, yeah, I got, a, I got coaches, a lot of them, and I'm blessed for it.
1: It's interesting how you describe yourself as like an athlete who, you know, in life finds coaches, finds being open and understanding what the new trends and how to make yourself better in some way, you know?
2: I love sports and i love competition and i love the magnificence of people and and what's possible for them i mean there's there's miracles that are created every day that are right there and i i have a tendency i guess because of my interests i don't know i tend to see so many things that occur in athletics not really fair to say sports but the athletic part of man the the way paradigms are shattered and records broken and I ask myself, where does it stop? Doesn't it have to be finite at some point? We could, how do we manage to get a second faster or an inch higher or longer or better? How how does that, how does that occur? How does that continue to occur? And when you look over history and the and you think, gosh, for 2000 years, I mean, probably the oldest sport is running, I know wrestling is a close second, but You think that the the competing, and and to think that it wasn't until 1953, the year I was born, that human beings, one in particular, Roger Bannister, ran a four-minute mile. And there were scientists who said that was impossible. That would never be done. Never. And now high school kids do it. It's been bested by double-digit seconds. How is that possible? And it just to me, it just there's such wonder in it, you know, at the capability and the possibility of what we don't know we're capable of. Where does it stop? It doesn't. I'm I'm convinced in my own small mind that it doesn't have a limitation. If it does, I, I haven't witnessed it. It's just amazing to me. Anyway, sorry to get sidetracked probably.
1: It's good and probably as a wrestler, you understand the athletic component of
2: it. Oh, how I love wrestling and amateur wrestling and there's so many aspects and disciplines about that sport in particular. I'm sure there's, there's other examples. But one of the things that wrestling gave me is understanding how important it is to be in the moment because you can leave what you know how to do and how to react and all that aside. Because when you wrestle, it's all in the moment right now. Like, you know, there's no time to think when you wrestle. You don't think, well, I mean, maybe a little bit. I might, I might try this. I might try that instantly. But when you're actually on the mat and you're engaged and it's you and another individual and what you're trying to do is best that individual with an objective you're in the moment and it's just you although you know there are wrestling teams it's not a team sport it's just you and it is it's it's an amazing discipline and distinction a different one than many types of sports another sport I of course love that I've watched grow and evolve incredibly is the sport of lacrosse and interestingly enough not only did i love to play the game played it for 23 years including the refereeing and coaching i did but it has such an interesting history to it that people don't know that people don't ask they have no idea years ago when i went to the world games of lacrosse which were held that year in toronto in 1986. There were four teams since the World Lacrosse Association began, four countries that participated in the sport of lacrosse, which is the only true American sport. I say that people say well basketball is an american sport well it was invented by someone in america but lacrosse was developed by native americans and it was named by the french explorers because they believed the stick that the players used resembled a the shepherd's crook of the french bishop so they named the sport lacrocher which translates to lacrosse the indians called it de hanche, which means the creator's game. And it was developed as a game to toughen Braves for battle, a war game that was played inner tribe and across you know, the country in different Indian, Native American cultures. And today, 53 countries play lacrosse japan ghana chile peru you know uh, taiwan have lacrosse teams It, it blows my mind and the game has evolved so much but the history of the sport and the beauty and the grace of the sport and all the different elements that's included in it not only endurance and physical toughness and contact, but the skill set and hand eye coordination with operating a lacrosse ball in a stick and scoring goals and just the exhilaration. They say it's the fastest game on foot because it moves at a pace like basketball, but it's as rough as ice hockey. And it has the grace of ballet. It's just a phenomenal thing. And what a gift that game has been to me and how much I love it and love to watch it. And yet the two sports that I probably adore the most are not the most popular in the world.
1: Why do you love lacrosse?
2: Well, again, I think I love it because of its history. It's it's such a a fascinating game, but I love it because it incorporates so many different pieces of what I love about sports. I love it because it's fast. I love it because it's rough. I love it because it's high scoring. I love it because it's amazing to watch people perform in it. I've loved the evolution of it. When I first played lacrosse, the sticks were all wood and catgut and leather, and now they're plastic and uh, polythene and, and, and mesh and aluminum, you know, poles. And that just, that shift has created a different speed. Like I could shoot a lacrosse ball out of my stick when I was in college, it was clocked on radar at about 83 miles an hour. And you're talking, you're not talking about a baseball, something like, you're talking about a hard, solid rubber ball that has a lot of weight to it. And believe me, when you're a goalie and that hits you, you feel it. But to rocket a ball, not at 80, but at 95 or 100 miles an hour, that's really something. Imagine trying to stop that. Imagine being able to do that, not by hitting it with a bat, which is an entirely different dynamic, being able to throw it that hard, more than a human arm could do. So the leverage, the physics, all of it, but the beauty of it, just to watch the grace and the beauty of the sport that still has, like people could say, well, soccer has that. Yeah, and soccer matches are one to nothing. A lacrosse game, giving one point for a goal, lacrosse games can be 22 to 21. You know how much scoring that is? It's fascinating how fast it moves. There's nothing boring about a lacrosse game. You can watch a lacrosse game and not have any idea how it's played and just see the sheer beauty of it and the action and the contact. That's what I love about it. Can you tell?
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. I use the crossball to foam roll and massage myself, so I know how hard. Ah, yeah,
2: that'll do it. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> but um, yeah. I'd say you playing it, you got to like any sport. Once you're in the the love of it, you you don't mind how long and how you know.
2: It's like a fraternity. Once you once you've played it. It, it's in your blood forever very much like wrestling is you know the, the what you learn as a wrestler the disciplines that I learned in wrestling were as valuable as the sport itself they were the real contribution of the sport being responsible the disciplines that you learn about yourself the sacrifice you know that those those are things that you carry with you all your life so these sports are and I'm sure every sport you know and the athletes that participate in them feel a similar way but there's there's so much of me that is because these sports formed and contributed these things to me. Many of my values and disciplines come from engaging in those sports and, and what the coaches taught me.
1: That's fascinating how sport develops those, those values that you probably use to this day.
2: Well, you would know in crew and, and, and rowing, you know, I mean, you talk about a sport that requires discipline and endurance. I mean, oh my gosh, you know, rowers and people that participate in, in, in crew or those types of, of uh, exercise and sports are the most physically, cardiovascular wise, and every other way you can think of. There, there are. And then, of course, somebody will say that gymnastics is, well, that has its own set of distinctions, as do all sports. But it just goes to show each sport, each form of competition has its own gift, its own gift to contribute to some people. And I, I I happen to build my life around what those sports gave me and just utilize it in a different way.
1: I, I like that fact that each sport for each individual gives them the gift. And if you think about it, each individual on this planet has a gift as well. So the sports and humans kind of intertwine together to create this love hate relationship when you're doing it yeah but, but yes when you watch it's like i love it and it's fantastic because you're sitting in your armchair and you're just like yeah. you don't have to go out there in the cold or the wet or the rain you know
2: that's funny because i remember people used to ask me which i loved more wrestling or lacrosse and my response to that would be whichever one i'm doing <laughs> like when i wrestled which was always during the winter it was wrestling it was all about wrestling and when i played lacrosse in the spring it was all about lacrosse so if you asked me in the spring i'd say lacrosse if you asked me in the winter i'd say wrestling i mean but but i didn't love one more than the other i loved them both equally and it when i was engaged in them it was whichever which one i was engaged in
1: and being in relationships with people chatting with them understanding them in a person or business you have to be engaged as well
2: you know no that's right if somebody asked me what my favorite aspect of the untraining is i'd have to say it's the one i'm in it's whatever conversation i'm in is the one i love the most
1: like you have the same conversation two people and they could be two completely different conversations but um yes
2: yeah yeah and whoever's listening can get different things from both and the same from both at the same time so it doesn't matter if Somebody a week later is talking about the same thing that somebody was talking about a week before. It's an entirely different contribution because they're not only giving their perspective on it, but it's another facet of what they heard. And the person listening to them gets something from that that's different from how they heard it the week before from someone else. So it's like, it's like, it's it's a never ending thing. And that's what makes it, I think, so intriguing and wonderful. There is no place to arrive it's like not like okay, I got it now. I I, I got all of it. No, you'll never, ne- never. No, it just never occurs. No one ever arrives. It's like a game that you constantly continue to play. Just like life is. No one ever arrives in life. I don't think until they die. That's when they arrive somewhere.
1: That is so true because we're all we're all playing the game which you call call life and you know, we think we're masters but we're never masters until we, we end up finishing this journey or life, whatever you want to call it, because that's what it is, you know? Yep. In network marketing, Russ, you probably got to see and understand the the pros and the cons of it, but yes, you talk about it's all about relationships and how you use listening and communication to identify that's right or wrong for that particular situation in that conversation
2: yeah I think that's very right What intrigues me, I think the most about network marketing is how people have lost sight that of what it is, it isn't a thing. It's not a company. It's not an experience. Network marketing is a system of distribution. That's what it is. Everything else, every other interpretation is something that people make up about it. It's a system of distribution, but you don't hear people speak about wholesaling the same way. You don't hear them speak about marketing online the same way. Why? Well, I think my own opinion, my opinion is, is that network marketing is the only system of distribution that really involves people. Now you could say they all involve people. Well, that's true, but I mean involves people as the essential dynamic of whether it works or not. Has to do with people, not the product, not the money, not, you know, capitalism, they're all capitalism, but what makes network marketing different people? it's been often called the people's franchise it's a way that people can bootstrap a business with practically no capital and create a multi-million dollar enterprise using someone else's product <laughs> what's that it's a system of distribution is all it is but that isn't enough it's what people create with it that makes it what it is it's people being in it and knowing how to use it is what makes it work or not So i think it's fascinating because if you were to stop 100 people on the street and ask them what network marketing is can you imagine what most of them would say oh that's one of those pyramid deals like a chain letter that's that's that's, that's amway they'd say that's this that's that you know none of those things are so none of them now could network marketing be a pyramid yeah it could be i guess if it's done a certain way could it be an illegal pyramid yeah it could be it's done a certain way is network marketing amway no it's not and yet amway uses network marketing so in that context i guess that you could say network marketing is amway but you couldn't say Herbalife is amway you couldn't say mary kay is amway you couldn't say melaleuca is mary kay why not they're all network marketing yeah but they're not they're companies that are selling a product or products and they're using a system of distribution called network marketing that's the common denominator but they're not network marketing companies. And man, I'm telling you what, am I ever asking for a scab on the end of my nose when I bring that one
1: up? (laughs) You're asking for a black eye.
2: (laughs) I'm asking for a black eye, that's right.
1: Doing this for a long time, you've probably come across people and figured out and seen it all, but if someone was starting out right now, would that be the advice you give them?
2: If they were starting out to build a business using network marketing? Yes. What advice would I give them? I would advise, that they pay little attention to what others opinions are of what network marketing is, that they ask themselves four questions and know what the answer to those questions are. Those four questions are, what am I building? Who does it include? What does it provide? And why would somebody wanna be a part of it? That they see they're not involved or in or with anything in fact if anything the opposite is true that a company that uses network marketing is a supplier of a product and an opportunity to take that product and create with it but that's essentially where the relationship begins and ends what gets created out of that is what people themselves need to be responsible for. I don't care how good an opportunity is or how good a product is. Those things are not what make people successful. And I find that people are always looking for success and the motivation for success outside of themselves. And in my opinion, that's not where those two things live. Motivation and success live inside ourselves which is where we need to look and discover them because we are the only ones that can define them that would be the advice i'd give them
1: that's such so powerful because as human beings we look outside and say oh like for me i could say you know this podcaster is fantastic because he does that and i think that's the way i should be and then you know this conversation happens and it gets bigger and bigger and the story happens and then I end up in this state of confusion because I feel like I have to be this person. But actually, I have the gift, you know, and it's inside me, but then outside
2: it is and inside of you is an unlimited capacity to define your own success. It's not defined outside of you by others. That's where there's a big breakdown for people in network marketing. And that's why you hear people say, I just got involved in I'm with because And they don't see how it makes them small to do that thinking, hook my wagon to them. I'll be successful. I think the opposite is true. If they learn how to make the connection that that company hooks itself to them, then they're the ones that create the success of that company, not the other way around, because without individual's success those companies don't exist they don't exist
1: everyone provides the power for all these companies in any type of business to succeed because we're a customer of buying products
2: we buy their products and sometimes we sell their products and other people buy their products as a result of our efforts so where would they be without us i'll tell you where they'd be they'd be with a big advertising budget and their fingers crossed
1: that's so true but yeah it's, it's funny at the same time because while well, you do your fingers crossed you know
2: <laughs> right. Well, it's because when 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 companies create and pay for an ad campaign, they got to be pretty sure that ad campaign's going to work. So that's why they have their fingers crossed. Hmm now they are and the money pays for results and they got lots of evidence to support that but if a company is going to utilize network marketing the smartest thing that it can do in my opinion is see what it can provide the distributors that will allow the distributors to succeed on their own not how can they make their distributors succeed because they've got nothing to do with it for the most part they're just the supplier and i actually think that's good news for network marketing companies even though a lot of them don't want to hear it
1: (laughs) Russ, I know that you're probably in your superpower, but what is your superpower?
2: What is my superpower? I think my superpower is a indefatigable ability to appreciate where I get joy in life is through appreciating who others are. I often say that, and this is another way of saying, I guess what you asked me, but I believe that God gave me a gift, a special gift. I'm not saying that others don't have this gift i'm just saying that i recognized at some point in the last 30 years that this was a gift and my gift is i see who people are i see what they don't see about themselves that's special and my gift is partially that i see that and the other part of the gift is i get to show it to them and have them get it out in the world so that's my superpower is i see what people who they are and what their gift is but particularly what they don't see. And then I have the privilege of showing it to them and assisting them and getting it out into the world. That would be what I would say.
1: Wow, that's such a gift to have.
2: Yeah, it gives my life a lot of joy.
1: Seeing people in their naked form. I think that's cool as well, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, the thing is, I believe, and this is a cliche, but I believe that we all have a special gift. And it saddens me sometimes to think about, and I realize that this is so, it's just the way of the world. We can say for whatever reason, so many people go to their grave and live life without ever realizing the gift that they had and being able to give it. So I'd like to shift that to the degree that I can. But what, in a way, one of my coaches once said it, he said, you know, we're all musicians and we all have an instrument to play but so many of us go to our grave with their sweetest music unplayed
1: wow that's that is so true when when you heard that quote did that kind of spark something to realize that we all have that gift of
2: playing them? yeah oh it definitely it definitely did. i've never forgotten it i've never forgotten it and i think whoever said that quote they were taught that quote They didn't come from that I've never seen that quote attributed to someone but it may have very well come from one of the great speakers or motivators it could have come from a Dale Carnegie or a Zig Ziglar or somebody like that I don't know I just know that when I heard it and I'm paraphrasing it even now but when I heard it I thought how incredibly profound that is and what would it be like if I could use my life to have people play their sweetest music. And that's when I decided what I'd do for the rest of my life.
1: Being able to play the soul of the block, the Chopin of the soul. And that's the gift, you know?
2: That's right. Good way to put it.
1: And probably when you heard that, you realized, yeah, I'm home. I found what I'm searching for.
2: Yes. No, I did. And that was almost 30 years ago and that's what got me looking at what my life's purpose was and i remember when somebody was helping me to define that and we were talking about my values and which one really had my name on it and the first piece of it was contribution like how important it was for me to make a difference maybe selfishly to be noticed i don't know but could be but the second piece was to contribute what when i boiled it down the one that really resonated and was a clunk with me was to contribute love love and especially love like appreciation love but appreciation leads to discovery and the discovery leads to illustration and the illustration leads to contribution so it's one circle and the contribution is love
1: love is so powerful it's passion it's what we do it's kind of our hearts singing outwards and that's probably you experience as well yeah Russ, you talk about commitment. Where did commitment kind of come into your life in a sense of where you felt like this is everything I gotta do and this is, I gotta give it 100%.
2: Probably the best distinction that I learned about commitment was the one that was drawn, a great coach that I deeply admire and I often reference. But he, he said to me, there's an important distinction in our culture that's missing between what we want and what we're committed to. He says, what's very common even in teaching is people will say, well, if you didn't get that, you didn't want it bad enough. And I remember he said, wanting has very little to do with getting, like our our wanters work fine. It's our getters that are broken. We can want lots of things. And sometimes we get what we want, but most of the time the universe doesn't move for what we want. The universe doesn't care. But when you think about it and you really pay attention to it, and there's many examples of this in my life, what we get is what we're committed to. And the good or the bad news, however you want to look at it, is we're always committed to something. There's not no commitment in the universe. There's always commitment to something. Commitment to safety, commitment to love, commitment to being remembered. What's the commitment? I mean, I can give you countless examples of things in my life that I might've wanted them, but I never thought I could have them. But if I really developed a plan to get them and I was committed to it, I always got them. So the shift there is that commitment has less to do with evidence like wanting something does, I I can tell you, I want something. You'd say, okay, now show me the evidence that you can get that. I'd say, well, all I've got to do is this, 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 and this, but commitment lives in a different place. It lives in an existential realm. And a commitment is another word for a commitment. I think is a stand for instance. You can say, Russ, I know you love your daughter, but how do you know your daughter will never starve? And if I thought, well, I don't want my daughter to starve. Somebody might say, well, provide me the evidence that she won't. I know you really want that, but show me where she won't starve. Well, I can't do that. I I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't, you know, that's what'll come up for me when I'm looking for evidence. But I can tell you as a commitment, my daughter will never starve. You'll say, well, how do you know that? I don't have to know that. I say so, period which makes a commitment something that ontologically is called a stand. And the thing about a stand is it's not a position because every position calls forth opposition. But a stand is an existential act of courage. It is because you say it is. That's what a commitment is. A commitment is this will happen or you will drag my cold, lifeless body away before it doesn't happen. That's a commitment. And we all have that if we can tap into it. This is a commitment, I'm. this is what I'm doing. Well, how do you how do they know you can do this? I don't, I don't know. I don't know, I don't have evidence of it, but I'm doing it anyway, is that all right? You gonna get in my way? Now, when you think about that and put that in context of something like sports, you can see the part that commitment plays. They don't want it more than somebody else, but they will have it. And how they will have it is because that's their commitment. We always get what we're committed to, and we're always committed to something. I don't know if that's true, Aaron, but I know it's a great place to operate from.
1: I, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's a great place to operate because when you're being committed, you're, you're showing that I'm 100% in, I'm rolling the dice and I'm taking the risk. And I don't know what happened, but I'm gonna go with it and see where it goes. And I think that's what it is.
2: Exactly, and that's what creates results. It's often said, and this is often used as an example, John Kennedy in 1962 said, by the end of this decade, we'll put a man on the moon. NASA NASA was at a stage where that, that would seem impossible. He did not have any evidence to support that statement. It landed for some like a ridiculous brag, but guess what, put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And I say that came out of an existential act of courage to say, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm committed to bank on it. And that's what the universe moves for. It moves out of our commitments, not out of what we want, which that doesn't mean we can't want things and wanting isn't valuable. And to really want something isn't even more valuable, but I don't believe that that's the key because wanting is taking a position. You can provide evidence of why you want it, and I can provide evidence of why you won't get it. But an existential act of courage has no opposition because it doesn't need evidence to support it. It's a possibility would be another way of saying it. It's a possibility. It's not a position.
1: With all those ingredients, Russ, when someone tells you success, what is that defined in your own head?
2: Success? I define success as being complete. What I mean by that is success for me is getting to a place of peace, where there isn't anything anymore to be done. Like when you succeed at something, when you set out to do something and you complete that thing that you set out to do, there's nothing more to do. So if I was to say, I want to create a painting or a poem, and I want that effort to be successful, If I create a poem and at the end of it, I say, there it is. There isn't anything to add to it. There isn't anything more. That's it right there. Then to me, that's success. It's the completion of something where there's nothing else. do if i'm a success in life if i set out to create a foundation as a legacy to give to the world after i'm gone when i build that foundation and fund it and i know it's being run and know it's giving to where it's supposed to give i'm complete now i'll declare that a success because it's what i set out to do and it's done there isn't anything left over to me that's success if i make it about Making money and more money and more money, that, that, that doesn't have any end to it. What, how much money is enough? Don't know. If I set out to create a painting that makes me happy, at what point does it make me happy? I don't know. If I define the success as whether somebody else will like it and somebody goes, oh my God, I love that I have to have it, then I'm gonna call that a success. But for me, it's about completion. I wanna be looking forward to the trip, not wondering or worried about what I didn't do. That's a success. Does that answer the question? It does. I don't get asked that very often. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever been asked that.
1: I was curious to see what it means to you because you're teaching people how to define their own success and design. it. Yeah, curious.
2: And be responsible for it. That's what the success by design means is it doesn't happen by chance. It doesn't visit you by accident. It doesn't happen by luck or lottery. It happens because you define it and you design it and you bring it about and then you declare it a success. Success by design.
1: And at the same time, you think I manifested this and magic happens. No, you sat down and and you, you made all these things happen. And that's the end result of the magic of sitting down and grueling through designing that success plan.
2: I don't know how much I have to do with things actually happening, but what I really enjoy is being a part of it, being a piece of it, of something happening and seeing that, getting the satisfaction of that. There's so much to do in life, in the world, you know, more than anyone could do or accomplish ever in a lifetime. All I'm out to do is have one little piece of it, be one little drop in the ocean of contribution. You know, many years ago when I was in England, I've been in England since, but the first time I was in England, I went to a famous graveyard near London. It was called Stoke Poges. I don't even know if it's still there. I don't know why it was called that, but that's what it was called. And I saw an epitaph on a grave that I took a picture of and never forgot it. And the epitaph was really simple, but it said, life's race well run, life's work well done. That's all it said. And I thought, Wow, I'd like to have that for an epitaph one day. Life's race well run, life's work well done, huh? Kind of says it all for me.
1: It says it for me too. You lived life, you ran the race, and it's time to, you know, put the feet up and drink your beer and enjoy what you've done. Yep. Russ, if if someone came to you on the street and asked you for one piece of advice, what would it be?
2: What would they ask me, or what would I give them? What would you give them? I would give them the last line of a poem called desert errata, which is strive to be happy.
1: Wow. I love that. Russ, if people want to find out more and learn more about you, where, where can they go?
2: Well, a couple places, I suppose, but I guess the place I would send them first is to the website. That we have set up for the course. Now, w- not to sell them the course, but we constructed that website that has an interview with a beautiful woman named Gaz Jabin, who's a very famous and successful person in England and the UK for marketing. And she does an interview with me. It also has testimonials about my work and an outline of what I teach. And that website is successbydesign.us. And of course, they could also find my profiles on facebook my name's very simple and easy to remember it's russ which is short for russell but it's russ Devan, and my last name is d e capital v a n like the car the bus the truck the van you can even remember like a rusty van going down the street but it's russ Devan.
1: russ it's been a pleasure having you on the show and sharing what you gotta share and some of the blast man
2: well the honor's been mine erin and thank you for this and and uh you're just you're a huge contribution to me and i'm so thankful and grateful that we've met if we're complete i want to thank you I'm so partially